1: In the West, the study of the phenomenon known as the Crusades has long been dominated by European concerns, European periodization, European selection of important moments and personages, and most of all, European sources. In recent years, scholars such as Carol Hillenbrand, Paul Cobb, and Michael Lower have mined Arabic language material with the purpose of creating a more balanced view of the Crusades, one that gives the Muslim experiences a voice in the English language. Now, Dr. Suleiman Murad, Professor of Religion at Smith College, and Dr. James Lindsay, Professor of History at Colorado State University, have produced an anthology known as Muslim Sources of the Crusader Period. Covering a wide range of topics and a diverse set of sources, Muslim Sources of the Crusader Period makes new translations of primary source material available to English-speaking students and scholars of the Crusades. In our conversation, Jim, Suleiman and I touch upon how the Crusades are perceived differently in Muslim sources than they are in European sources, how to categorize an anthology and what sort of sources to include, and the importance of establishing the diversity of opinion even within the Muslim sources. I am one of your co-hosts, Dr. Aaron Hagler from Troy University, and thank you for listening to the New Books in Middle Eastern Studies podcast. Now, to our topic. Welcome, Jim and Suleiman, to New Books in Middle Eastern Studies, and thank you very much for joining us. Uh, your anthology, Muslim Sources of the Crusader Period, seeks to fill a gap in the scholarship of the Crusades, pointing out that in general, scholarship of the Crusades in English tends to be dominated by European sources. You've set about translating a wide array of Muslim sources and collected them in this volume with the purpose of making them available to students and scholars of the Crusades who do not themselves read Arabic. But before we get to the book itself, I'd like to uh, you each to say something about your own academic journeys. Uh, what brought you uh, to studying the Crusades in general? So uh, Suleiman, if you wouldn't mind, we could start with you.
2: Thank you so much, Ari, for having us uh, on your program. Uh, the, my journey has been very, very long. Uh, started uh, back when I was undergraduate student at the American University of Beirut. Uh, at that time, I was studying mathematics. And uh, I took a few courses in Middle Eastern history and the topic really excited me tremendously. Part of uh, my own, essentially, questions uh, were related to the political reality of the Arab Muslim world at the time when I was growing up. So I wanted to find answers for that. And uh, when you study the modern period, soon you realize you can't understand it properly until you study the pre-modern period. And when you go to the pre-modern period, you realize you cannot understand it properly unless you study the medieval period. So it became like a domino effect backward. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, accidents made me focus part of my work uh, on the period around the Crusades. Uh, and uh, I start reading it, uh, reading uh, both scholarship and novels about it. And actually, I became very, very excited about it, interested in it. Uh, realizing uh, its complexity uh, and everything, uh, as the pun goes, is history from there.
1: <laughs> Very good. I, I totally relate to how one thing leads to another. It, it almost feels like you're trying to, to scrabble your way out of quicksand and you just keep getting pulled in deeper and deeper and deeper as you realize you need to go back further.
2: Indeed, indeed. And uh, when I got essentially to late antique, started studying Syriac. Uh, the origin of the Quran, the world from which Islam came, I also realized you have to dig deep into pre-modern, uh, the period before late antique, into ancient Iran, into the Greco-Roman world. And there I said, I can't do it. Uh, <laughs> you see, uh, the good thing about uh, Islamic studies generally is Arabic can carry you a long way to go. Persian helps, Syriac a little bit, but once you start going back in time, You need the expertise of certain languages, and that becomes very complicated. So I stopped there, and I came back, reoriented myself uh, into uh, partly the Crusader period and partly the period that is about the formation of Islam, and how both are being remembered today.
1: Very good. Thank you. Uh, And uh, Jim, to you, same question.
3: Uh, Mine's a little almost um, the reverse, but it's completely haphazard as well. Um, I, I grew up, a, my dad was a, uh, a preacher, and so I grew up on, you know, Bible stories and Bible characters, and those people were real-life people in my imagination, and, you know, President Johnson was just the president. He, he didn't really matter in my mind, my world when I was a little kid. So when I uh, finished college, I was a history major. I wanted to do uh, ancient Near East and biblical studies and that kind of thing. I had an opportunity to go to the Hebrew University, and I intended to do that there in Jerusalem. And I took a class with Yochanan Friedman because I was, you know, on Islamic history. I thought I should learn something about it since I was in the neighborhood and ultimately ended up shifting from ancient Near East and Hebrew as my primary language to um, early Islam and, and Arabic. So I kind of I kind of got into it in a... Haphazard way, but I started out with an uh, interest in the the way back. And like Suleiman said, there was too many languages that I would have to know to really do well in that. And it's also a I think the ancient world is a little bit more well trodden than what what Suleiman and, and I and what you do. Uh, there's a there's a lot more opportunity to do things that are new uh, in this in this part of the world or this part of history. So I I I've, I found uh, I found a home in this part, but it al- it also allows me to do, uh, particularly where folk- this this book is on the Crusader period. You're you're still dealing with uh, you know Judaism, Christianity, and Islam and interactions uh, in a very vibrant period, and so that's uh, I, I still I draw on my earlier uh, interests very much, but I my my primary focus is in this in this time frame.
1: Okay. Uh, wonderful, thank you both very much. Uh, so let's right get right into it. Uh, to the book, uh, can you talk about either one of you why you felt this anthology was a necessary one at this point?
3: Um, I guess I'll, I'll jump in. The p- part of the 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 need for the anthology grew out of our earlier project, which was more of a heavy duty scholarship uh, project where we we worked on. We, we did an Arabic edition and English translation of a jihad manual by Ibn Es Sakr, a Damascene uh, historian, and uh, we found that to be quite enjoyable, but we also found, since we both had taught courses on the Crusades, that the, the stuff that's available in English from the Islamic side it was, was limited. And we thought that since we enjoyed working together on that other project, we'd try our hand at this. And um, that, that's I, that would be my my version of, of why how we got into it. But I think the you know every teacher has has their books that they really enjoy using, and other ones that they use because it's the only thing available. But you're not very satisfied with it. And I think uh, dissatisfaction with what was available is one of the, the motivators and an opportunity to to put together something that, you know, that we we ourselves would wanna use in class and hopefully uh, our colleagues in the field will agree with us.
2: Okay. Yeah, I would, I would completely agree with that. Uh, I add uh, one thing uh, uh, to illustrate the point that Jim uh, raised just now, uh, that's largely the dissatisfaction was well of the source, available sources in English. When you teach, uh, you soon realize the limitation of the sources that are available for you to give the student a, a realization and understanding about how complex the world of the Crusades was, especially the Muslim Crusader interactions. Uh, hence, we felt we need to uh, uh, look at a variety of examples in order to fill that lacuna that we couldn't find in English. Sure. Um, So there's
1: obviously a bunch of of Muslim works on the Crusades. I mean, the the corpus is obviously quite vast. Um, And so you're you're looking to, I guess, fill a gap. Um, What considerations went into your selection of sources? I know one thing that you mentioned in there was that you were not going to include stuff that was already available in English. So um, maybe these are either either lesser known or for whatever reason haven't been translated yet. Uh, But yeah, what considerations went into your selection of sources and then uh, secondary question, within specific sources, how did you decide where to begin your selections and where to end them, how to frame the the specific selections?
3: Well, wow, that's a really good question. Um, well, some of this, I mean, not everything in here has not been translated. I mean, there are certain things that you simply can't avoid, uh, including, but we did our own translations because we wanted it to flow uh, a little more smoothly. Um, I would say the big, my biggest dissatisfaction with the stuff that was available, it was it was heavily based on chronicles, and it was it tends to be heavily based uh, or focused on uh, Saladin and Richard and the Third Crusade that that period, and we wanted to uh, illustrate that what we call the Crusader period is a much chronologically much larger area. And also to convey the idea that, from the point of view of the Muslim actors, uh, the Crusades are not necessarily anything new, but they're sort of like the latest phase in an in ongoing uh, story. And so in, in choosing the sources, we wanted to um, bring to, I guess, bring to light to students and, and colleagues as many voices as, as possible you know, a de- disparate kinds of voices. So we have, you know, we have poetry, we have, we of course have chronicles, but we have religious texts, we have geographical texts, we have inscriptions to, you know, to demonstrate to the reader the the breadth of what's available and what uh, scholars and students can use to understand this period more in, in its complexity a little bit better.
1: When you say the, cru- yep. oh, sorry, go ahead, Suleiman.
2: I'm just uh, completing uh this excellent thought that uh, Jim uh, uh, contributed uh, uh, to say that, uh, uh, indeed, uh, uh, the complexity and the diversity of the sources, uh, of the Muslim sources, uh, is a a matter of great richness for the student of crusader history. Uh, But I want to go back to a point that you raised, Ari, at the beginning, uh, that uh, largely crusader historiography uh, is determined on the basis of European agendas. Uh, I don't necessarily say this in any negative way in as much as uh, European history hegemonizes the way the story of the Crusades is told, including what Muslim sources are identified as interesting to read. Uh, And here, uh, when you you are a European historian, you want to look at who was the interlocutor of uh, Richard the Lionheart, who was the interlocutor of St. Louis, the ninth, Uh, you identify specific people uh, or specific periods, and you go, look, what was the Muslim reaction to that? That is not how the Muslims saw the Crusades. So if you really want to pay attention to what the Muslims said and how they perceived of this phenomena that we call the Crusades, you need to look at the Muslim sources without this kind of prejudice. You have to open yourself to all kinds of literature. That the Muslims produced at the time, where they commented in one way or another, whether it is direct or indirect, about the Crusader period and about the challenges that they were facing, and then you can get a good understanding of Islamic reaction to the Crusades, rather than come to it from a European perspective.
1: So, if you wanted to, if you were going to summarize uh, the major differences between the the uh, Muslims' views of the Crusades. Versus the European views of the Crusades, what would you say are the major differences? I mean, not just um, not just who are the good guys and the bad guys, but you know the periodization and maybe some of the geography about where the Crusades were happening. Uh, what are the key differences you would want people
3: to take away? Oh, you're asking good questions here, Ari. I'm gonna I'm gonna let uh, Suleiman respond to that one while I think a little bit. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that, that's a trick, uh, Jim. You are throwing me under the bus first. Anyway. <laughs> Um what, what I look at uh, for this specific question um, is uh, that the Muslims largely talking here about the historians who wrote about the period, uh, they were writing as if uh, they were the people who were living there, not the people who were invading the uh, region. In reality, there is a little bit of a complexity about that. that Some of the historians were not actually from, say, Syria and Egypt. They came, like uh, uh, al-Khatib al-Isfahani, who was the secretary of Saladin. He came from Isfahani. He's not a local person. But when he wrote history, he wrote as if the crusaders came and invaded us. So that is something that you see uh, in terms of the Crusades seen from the Arabs as something that came from outside. It is, as Jim said, it is another chapter uh, of different things. You know, there are uh, the period saw lots of encroachments into this period, uh, into this geography. It wasn't simply the Crusaders. At some points, the Muslims were uh, having uh, uh, battles with the Byzantines. Uh, a couple of decades before, you have the Seljuks coming and invading greater Syria and, and challenging uh, Egypt. So the, the period was uh, in, in transformation uh, and the Muslims were commenting on lots of things that were happening around them and not only the Crusades uh, or the Crusaders. Uh, and that is a major distinction. Let me go back and rephrase it. When we want to look at the Islamic history of the Crusader period, we need to look at the history of a geography and what was happening there from the, uh, or as Muslims saw the important things that happening there. And therefore, the crusade, the, 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 the Crusades were not the most important thing. They were a serious challenge, but they were one of several important things that were unfolding. And the Muslim historians and religious scholars were trying to struggle with all of the struggle, all of these transformation together, rather than uh, at, at one thing at a time. Uh, if you look at Crusader history from European perspective, it's largely a series of campaigns uh, that were uh, tied to varieties of geographies. At one point, European history decided that they want to zoom only on the encounter with the Muslims. There is a revisionist historiography of, of the Crusades today that tries to see uh, to see the Crusader phenomena as varieties of Campaigns into different geographies, including uh, uh, against the Byzantines, including uh, parts of Western Europe, and then later on Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, so they start look at it again from the perspective of the totality of it rather than from one angle of it. So um, I I think Jim must have thought of something. So I'm gonna stop here. Yeah,
3: <laughs> yeah. yeah, I I would agree with everything that Suleiman has said, and, and I think. Um, One of the things that we're trying to um, open up a little bit is, you know, professional crusades historians know that the crusades are more than from Urban's sermon in 1095 until the fall of the last outpost in 1291 along the Syrian coast. I mean, nowadays, historians know that the, what we call the Crusader enterprise is much larger, it includes Spain, it includes North Africa, it includes Sicily, Southern Italy, but it still is focused on the Eastern Mediterranean primarily. And so our sources are, are primarily Eastern Mediterranean sources, but even there we're trying to um, introduce the reader to a world that is is not just thinking of this period from you know, the late 10 hundreds to the late 1200s as the, the thing that the only thing that matters in this part of the world, the world, you know, people continue to live, uh, day-to-day life continues to go on, interactions between uh, local Muslims, Christians, and Jews are, are continuing on, but also interactions between, uh, you know, Muslim uh, rulers, notables in cities, villagers with the, the Franks who have come, some who have settled, some who are coming new and haven't accommodated themselves. So we're trying to um, bring these kinds of things to light in as, with as many different kinds of sources as possible. But I think one of the, the key things that, that, that both of, I know both Suleiman and I emphasize in our classes that what we call the Crusades in the West are not that's not how it's how it's perceived by the people who are being uh, who are facing this new invasion or this new uh, military encounter that begins in the late 1000s. Uh, it's not something that just started out of the blue, but this is part of a very long uh, process that has been going on since certainly since the early uh, 600s.
1: In other words, they don't really draw a clear distinction between these crusaders from Western Europe. And the other Christians, they were fighting in Byzantium or uh, campaigns in Spain and Sicily. They, they don't. There's not so much of a, a clear division between those.
3: No, I think it's I think it's generally conserved, cons, uh, conceived of as all of a piece. Yeah, and and we shouldn't forget we are talking
2: about specific uh, educated intelligentsia scholars mm-hmm. uh, who have been uh, morphed into. A, a, or the, whose understanding of Islamic history uh, is largely similar uh, and who look at uh, the history from the, f- was that kind of continuity uh, that there is a world of Islam, there is a world of Christianity. Uh, and uh, there has been period obviously of long pieces between the two, but there have been a lot of wars between the two. Uh, so yes, a lot of the sources that we deal with uh, don't make the distinction Uh, Actually, if we look at Ibn al-Athir, for instance, he he tells it very clearly that, uh, you know, it's not that the Crusaders appeared in 1097, uh, that this started way back in Spain and the conquest of Sicily uh, and other parts. So only now that they are showing in the Eastern Mediterranean. So he makes that kind of uh, connection. Uh, And and to uh, complement what Jim just said is it's very important as well that when we think of the question of how Islamic history of the period is different, uh, or how scholars were thinking of that period in a little bit different, is that most of them were thinking of it uh, in the broader context of Islamic history from beginning till the end, and they don't mean the end at their time, the end in terms of future, the, the end of time. So there is that continuum that lots of religious scholars, Muslim religious scholars have in mind when they think about history, there is a beginning, there is an end, there is their time, and they try to struggle to make sense of it all and how things fit as puzzles into that kind of a broad scheme. Um, and that's very important to, for, for us to, to read uh, when we read Crusader history so that we understand really what these Muslim historians, uh, religious scholars, uh, jurists, uh, geographers were trying to achieve.
1: Well, that actually is a a great point that segues directly into the next question I was going to ask. Uh, You're talking about how they're organizing things. And my question now to the both of you is about your organization. Um, You have divided the anthology into sections, some of which uh, you just mentioned. Uh, There are six sections. Uh, The first is travel literature and geographical guides. Then there's jihad books and juridical directives, followed by chronicles, memoirs, and poetry, biographies, correspondences, uh, treaties, and truces, and finally inscriptions. So you're trying to put together a, a picture uh, from the Muslim perspective of this period in history. Uh, why these categories? Um, how did you select the categories? Uh, were others maybe considered and rejected? I'd love to hear just kind of about your your organizational principles.
3: Okay. Um, I. I'm going to use your question to follow up on what Suleiman was just talking about on this, this broader conception of Islamic history. Yes, please. And our, our first chapter, Travel Literature and Geographical Guides, can, gets to that as well. Because just as the, I mean, in the Jewish tradition and in the Christian tradition, the history of you know, the people of Israel begins with Adam and Eve, the history of Christianity begins with Adam and Eve, the history of Islam begins with Adam and Eve as well. And in the travel, the the text that we included in the travel literature and geographical guides, um, there's, you know, descriptions of these sacred spaces in eastern, uh, the eastern Mediterranean, most, you know, in the holy land writ large, that are shared places of sanctity among all three traditions. And uh, so obviously the authors here are Muslim authors, so they're, they're they're focusing primarily on their interpretation of these sites, but they're not uh, exclusively only Islamic sites. They know that Christians are there. They know that, I mean, that Christians venerate them, or that Jews venerate them. And uh, by including these texts here in at the very beginning of the anthology, we we're trying to set the tone for uh, introducing the the you know the reader to this to this larger world of. You know, there's, multi, there's a variety of monotheistic communities that are um, sharing this space and, and seeing it in similar ways, but also in uniquely different ways. And that, that's one of the things that we're trying to do in that opening chapter. And I'll, I'll turn it over to Suleiman now.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Jim, for that. Uh, that's exactly, you know, we, we talked a lot about these categories and how to divide them and went back and forth in terms of arranging them putting one uh, before the other, etc., And finally, we settled on this precisely along the line that uh, Jim said, uh, because when, uh, again, the stereotypical understanding of the Crusades uh, is that here you have the Crusaders who came, conquered Jerusalem, committed a huge massacre, killing 70,000 Muslims, um, uh, and took uh, Jerusalem away from the Muslims. And ever since the Muslims are trying to take it away, Uh, So as if Jerusalem was the reason for warfare. I'm not saying Jerusalem was not a reason for warfare, but one, we need to probably be a little bit humble in the way we assert certain things. Uh, And that's why Al-Haraway, for instance, tells us um, very stunning things about when he traveled. He traveled at the time when the crusaders were in charge of Jerusalem. He went there, prayed at the uh, Temple Mount, Uh, uh, and uh, describe what the crusaders actually did to the place Uh, and he goes all the way to Hebron and in Hebron he sits with a crusader knight, an old crusader knight and they reminisce about the patriarchs, about Abraham, Sarah Uh, and that crusader guy uh, uh, when he was a kid he went down and helped uh, uh, rebuild uh, the sanctuary uh, because at one point it seems it has uh, collapsed so uh, he was there, and, and al Harawi tells us that actually uh, he fi- he found that discussion with the crusader uh, knight uh, an extremely revealing on the one hand, uh, but more importantly, he says that now I have seen someone who saw Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in life, not in a dream. That is, he saw them dead, but he saw their corpses, because all his life al Harawi have heard about these patriarchs, but either people have told them about them in books or about dreams they have seen them, but never in reality. So there you see the world that actually both, and by extension Judaism as well, they, the three communities share that at some point they fought over it, at other points they sat down and realized that they all have the same history, the same religious dogma in uh, as relating to the uh, patriarchs in one way or another. They all revere similar geographies, similar personalities. Uh, it wasn't always animosity, uh, and they settled things through war. Uh, sometimes they settled things through friendships, uh, and uh, oftentimes they converge to the same spaces, not to worship together, but to worship in the same place, each community that tells you about the common that at least they realize they have. So it's very important Uh, to set the tone that it wasn't a period of bloodshed. And one shouldn't go all the way to the other side to say that there was no bloodshed. Actually, there was a lot of it, but it was a much more complex period. And you look at the geography, also geography tells you about how these Muslim uh, scholars identified the importance of many places. Uh, And that also puts you... Uh, or gives you that kind of realization that they didn't look at it as black and white. They often looked at it as shades, complex shades. Ibn Jubair tells us about this uh, church that used to be a mosque where Muslims go to worship uh, and the crusaders are also there, but they are in a different corner and also they worship. So again, plenty of this kind of material that witness some kind of coexistence that uh, uh, was present uh, and you have that from the perspective of muslim sources in a very clear way not tangential way or not speculative way it's very clear way uh, that complicates again our understanding and that goes into the different categories of the other books that we have Mm -hmm. uh, that it's important to look at the varieties of what the muslims produce at the time in order to again directly or indirectly talk to that challenge that we call the crusader uh, uh, invasion. Uh, so what, how they redefine, for instance, jihad ideology, uh, what type of uh, fatwas they issued that speak about relationships with the crusaders. Uh, uh, and the most important uh, feature of Islamic historiography that often doesn't get consulted is the art of biographical dictionary, which is a form of history. Uh, although it might be a little bit of a praise of a certain figure for the most part, especially rulers. But that also, you know, talks about them, what they contributed, how the authors of those biographies saw that person uh, achieve certain political, religious objectives. Uh, So it's very important when you study the Qusayda period to see how Muslims thought of Nur din for instance, who was probably the most important. Muslim political leader of the period, definitely of the 12th century, much more important than Saladin. And then you read this biography and realize that the biography is not obsessed with Nur dins relation with the Crusades or wars with the Crusades. It contextualizes again, Islamic history in a broad geography with many concerns. Um, and that is very important for the student of Crusader history to realize. So that, that's essentially the idea behind this kind of division is that uh, It gives you a, a, not a saturated, because in final analysis, we have a limited number of words that we can do. Uh, That's always a challenge for publishing a book. Uh, But you can give the student an ability to zoom on a genre of literature and get to appreciate how crusader period is told through that genre. So through biographical dictionaries, through geography, through jihad books, through chronicles, and above all, through... Two other things that are not always part of the story: uh, inscriptions, you know, how people went around dedicating inscriptions for mosques, for castles, for things of that type, or correspondence, theses, and truths that often get buried in our understanding of that period because they often it, it, it exposes um, a much more complex world than the simple narrative that we want to tell.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: I think one of the things that's, uh, so successful about it is uh, that you do include a whole bunch of different perspectives, even within those categories. Uh, like right in the middle of the um, second chapter of the Jihad books and juridical directives, you have uh, a translation of Ibn Taymiyyah's directive against the Shia, which is, you know, it, it kind of goes to, to serve the point that this was not unified Christians versus unified Muslims, but that we, even within each community, uh, I guess this is highlighting the Muslim community, that there's still significant division within the community.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. And if you see why Ibn Taymiyyah, it's not the only reason but one of the reasons he's angry against the Shiites is because he considered them to be collaborators with the crusaders. So that adds to what you just said Ari. Yes. about the complexity. That's not yeah. one group against another group. It's much more complex at least the way some people imagine. It.
3: And, and not only collaborators with the with the crusaders but also with the Mongols. So I mean that sort of in his day those are the two external powers that are, are pressing on, on the area. And, you know, he kind of ties them both in there together. And the, and the Shia are the bad guys for him. Um, well, another thing that we, we, in that first chapter, Suleiman had brought up Ibn Jubair's um, some of his discussions and he's from, he's from uh, Valencia. He's a, you know, he's from Spain. So he's, he's from the Western Mediterranean. He's come here and in his descriptions of the city of Acre and the city of Tyre i mean the headings in his texts are you know this is this you know the city of Tyre may god destroy it uh, the city of Acre may god destroy it and restore it to the muslims even though he's talking about interactions and they seem to be you know he describes a you know a christian wedding that he observes and he's he's a wonderful um, testifier to what he has seen he still needs, he, he still, as the outsider who has, has not gotten used to the Franks here in this part of the world, like some of the other authors who have interacted with them, uh, he still wants to restore the world to the way that it's supposed to be with, with you know, his version of Islam in charge, which is, again, that we're, which takes us back to Ibn Taymiyyah, who is, you know, his Sunni supremacism is, is very much on parade in that, in that fatwa. <laughs> That the natural order of things is that the Sunnis must be in charge. Anything that upsets that, you know, he, he doesn't he doesn't like. And uh, I don't know if I would enjoy spending time with Ibn Taymiyyah, but I enjoy reading him because there's no there's no nuance in, in, in much of what he writes. So it's very easy to teach from. <laughs> you know, he, he's very clear in what he wants wants to communicate. Absolutely. Which I th- which I think is fun for students when they encounter that because uh, many of our students are, are a little bit more reluctant to uh, actually articulate what is going on in their own minds because they don't want to be they don't want to step on anybody's toes. The authors that we're translating here they didn't mind stepping on people's toes because that was that was a that was rhetorically acceptable at that time. stomping
1: on people's toes even. is another.
3: Right, which is another way of, of entering, you know, getting the students to enter into a world that's very different from their own and to, to understand it on its own terms and not to impose our expectations of what's normal on the past. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. But another thing, you brought up the jihad things. One of the fatwas that we include in there is uh, a fatwa against selling arms to the Franks. Okay, so, well, you know, the, I, he, he's not going to issue. Uh, a declaration that you should not sell arms to the Franks, if people are not selling arms to the Franks. Of course. Uh, so it, it gives you an insight into the right there on the economic interaction that is existing in the in you know the Eastern Mediterranean at that time. So some author- Oh, uh, go ahead. Add,
2: and if I add one last thing, yeah, uh, we try to add a lot or to include a lot of poetry. Uh, because often poetry echoes a lot of feelings uh, and of uh, poetry was uh, as many people many scholars uh, when I was a student used to say it was a newspaper of the of the time uh, when you want to write something and disseminate it in the fastest possible way you do it in the medium of poetry so poetry was very important at the time there's plenty of poetry that is very relevant Uh, And unfortunately, uh, lots of scholars keep poetry aside because it's hard to translate. So we try to struggle with uh, many poems uh, in order to translate them, uh, precisely to give uh, the student uh, and the scholars who are interested access to that world from all its perspective. And poetry is is extremely important.
1: Well, thank you for that because uh, I can attest that poetry is extremely difficult to translate. Um, so, uh, some authors in here feature quite prominently: uh, Ibn Asakir, uh, my own personal favorite; Ibn al Athir; Ibn Wasil Sibt al Jauzi. These are obviously the big names, and they kind of their their sources come back again and again. You return back again and again to them. Uh, who would you say is maybe a, a lesser known source uh, that you have in here? Who you feel? provides value to a not to non-Arabic speaking students and scholars of the Crusades.
3: Um, well, I'm going to p- pick up on the poetry. Yes, please. Um, th- we included uh, Paisarani's poems about Frankish and Greek women in Antioch. And in a, you know, he, it's, it, it, it illustrates the importance of poetry, but it also illustrates that it does not matter the time period, the culture that a man may come from. He they invariably have the same response to beautiful women, and um, he's you know he's just he's captivated by the these women, and he he's just extolling their beautiful beauty and comparing them to the icons that he would see in a church. And just as the Christians would you know prostrate themselves and venerate the icon, you know these women are the ones who should be prostrated before and venerated because of their beauty. So we you know we include um, it, you know, those poems, they're, they're standalone poems, but they, they, they're, they're a window on a Muslim, um, you know, poets reaction to the, uh, to the outsider women. And it, it's not, um, you know, he probably should not be saying these things. I'm sure his wife, if he were to recite this poem to his wife, she wouldn't be happy about it, but it, it, it's a very nice insight into, um, the human condition—that this is his response to seeing the beauty of of the foreigner there. That, that's just one uh, small example that I think illustrates things quite nicely for
0: us. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, uh, I uh, for for me the, the there are um, one there are few uh, sc- uh, historians that we don't pay attention to a lot. Uh, one of them actually is a great Abu Shama. Uh, his book on the. Uh, uh, 13th century hasn't received the serious attention that it should receive. You know, this is a very important historian. Uh, often we only look at his Kitab al-Rawdata'in uh, because again, he wrote it about Nur ad din at Saladin, uh, but his uh, uh, history of his own period, uh, largely the, uh, the 13th century up till 1260s, uh, uh, is largely not as much used in Crusader uh, scholarship. Uh, so we are trying to pay attention uh, to Abu Shama in some ways. Uh, there is another one who comes, again, it's middle of the 14th century, and al-Iskandarani. Um, uh, but that is, nobody looks at him because we assume 1291 is the end of the Crusades when actually the Crusaders were still around. And people in the Eastern Mediterranean, the Muslims in Egypt and greater Syria were still concerned about attacks by crusaders from varieties of islands. Uh, And and where El-Iskandarani tells us about the attack against the major sack of Alexandria in 1365. Uh, So we we try to pay attention to some of these marginalized historians who are very important and who speak also about the period. Uh, So aside from the usual suspects, you have that. But what we also did is that in few cases, we decided to give more than one narrative uh, about a specific incident. So let me just illustrate with the case of Damascus. Uh, We we have two different, clearly different stories about what happened when the Crusaders, the second crusade attacked Damascus in uh, in 1148. Uh, There is one by a local scholar called Ibn al-Qalanisi and there is another one by Ibn al-Athir. And you read them, and you get completely different conclusions about that. And it's very important for the student when they read Muslim sources about the Crusader period that uh, they should look for different historians and what they all say rather than pick up one narrative and they say that what happened. Uh, actually, uh, of the two, from my own judgment, and that something came up in the discussions that we had with Jim as we were translating them and commenting on them, uh, is that... Ibn al-Khalanasi clearly is trying to exaggerate uh, a lot of details, whereas likely Ibn al-Athir is more down-to-earth in terms of his uh, his narrative. But that's my judgment uh, as a historian. Nevertheless, it's very important for the student to look at more than one narrative, the same way with the capture of Jerusalem, uh, the same way with how, for instance, uh, the Muslims engaged uh, the Third Crusade, uh, uh, so the Battle of uh, Hattin, uh, things of that type. You know, look at it from different historical perspective. Uh, what Ibn Athir said, what the uh, Katib Isfahani said, what Abu Shama said, because uh, they got their information not always from the same sources, and that nuances a lot uh, the narrative and helps us understand where certain historians try to exaggerate, try to praise try to uh, use more uh, what you call the stage of history in order to uh, 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 sing the praise of a specific leader versus actually telling us what really unfolded in an event. Uh, so,
1: and that's extremely important. So what do you think uh, accounts for the fact that sources like uh, al nuwayri al-Iskandarani, and Abu Shama are kind of ignored, well, you know the big names—you know, Sipped ibn al-Jawzi and Da'habi and Ibn Asakir and Ibn al-Athir—their uh, popularity has proliferated. Why these and not those?
2: You know, the, obviously the 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 biggest uh, factor is uh, availability in English. So now Ibn Athir is available in English. Uh, everybody is able to read Ibn Athir. Uh, Iskandarani, no, Iskandarani is only in Arabic, so only scholars who know Arabic can access it. But also, what adds to that is a factor that some scholars, some historians, medieval historians, become a fad, so to speak. So at one point, uh, Ibn Asakir was discovered. Lots of studies started to come around Ibn Asakir, created a kind of tremendous interest with dominant effect. So everybody started, oh, Ibn Asakir, I can might find interesting information uh, in him. So everybody started to, to go to uh, Ibn Asakir and the like. So you end up actually for, easy access, because the, the, the path has already been trodden, it makes it easier uh, for scholars to pursue specific suspects than to go and broach some historian who has never been studied before. Abu Shama, for instance, is, is Tarajim, uh, which is a continuation of uh, Kitab al-Raudatain, it's called Zayl also, uh, which is a, a combination of, of historical chronicle and also short biographical dictionary is extremely rich but again uh, you need the first great name scholar to dig into abu shama uh, and excites everybody so that abu shama becomes the go-to person uh, it's not yet the case uh, so th- th- that's often in my opinion uh, one uh, or some of the factors that uh, determine why certain people uh, are more popular uh, than other people in terms of our use of them in the way we write the history of the Crusader period.
3: Okay. Thank you. Yeah, and, and I, I will follow up on that. I mean, uh, a Naweri whose uh, text that we include in here on the sack of Cyprus is sack of of Alexandria, which is very vivid and full of. Uh, it's kind of captivating, but we don't really know much about him. We have his text, and as Suleiman said, it's not av- it's available in Arabic, so you, it's a lot of work to get get to it hopefully uh this this will you know uh encourage people to to look into it a little bit more um there are two we included also included two texts by Shandi which are um sort of diplomatic texts one of them is is a uh, it's an account of you know saladin's letter to bald um to Waldo now on the death of his father. And it's a very touching um, letter, you know, at the loss of a friend. Okay. As he's, as he's writing to his, you know, his boy successor, who's a, who's a boy king. Mm. And the other one that we included by him is, is an account of oaths of truce between, uh, the Mamluk Sultan Kala'un and the Franks of Akko, uh, Sidon and Atlit. And it's, it's very, it's, it's very insightful on, you know, format and the, the kinds of things that are sworn to in these oaths, but it it's also gives you, when you read the, the you know, account or his oaths, the things that he is appealing to, you know, to God, to the Quran, to the, sort of the, the important things to Islam, and then when you read the ones that are being sworn by the the Christian rulers, you know, they're appealing to, Uh, to the Messiah, to the cross, to the Trinity, to events of biblical history that um, are important to, if I swear by these things, I'm going to follow through on what I say. Mm -hmm. So both of those are texts that are not commonly found in um, sort of anthologies or things that you discuss uh, about the Crusades, but they they give really nice insight into, you know, the worldview and the value system of important actors in this time period. So I, I think that those are two other uh i don't want to say minor examples because we think they're all major uh but you know less less well known examples of what we include so one of
1: the things that i that i noticed and this this ties into what you were both saying about um trying to give multiple perspectives on things uh, you included uh what i like to call dueling biographies a uh, couple of them uh, one was on the ayubid ruler uh, al-muazzam you had one by sipt ibn al-jawzi and another by al-dhabbi and uh, another biography, a set of biographies on Ya'qub ibn Siklab, who was a Christian physician, one of them by Ibn Abi Usabiya and again, Siptimin al-Jawzi. Um, so why did you choose those two? I'm sure you could have found uh, any number of uh, figures to find different perspectives on. Was there something about Al-Mu'azzam or, or this uh, Christian physician Ya'qub that, that you thought was kind of a good
3: demonstration of
1: different perspectives?
3: Uh, I'll I'll let Suleiman go first on that one. Yeah,
2: You know, Al-Mu'azzam, again, we try to give a good representation for the 13th century, which gets often obfuscated, uh, especially the first part of the 13th century. You have the climax in terms of modern crusader historiography and interest. You have a tremendous instance in the Third Crusade, and there is a huge jump, uh, almost to uh, the uh, to a large extent uh, to Louis uh, Saint Louis in 1249-1250. Uh, uh, but more interestingly, toward the end, 1291, uh, and the, and you feel that the 13th century is the scholars of crusades really are not really interested in it. They already have decided that the crusader uh, project is tittering and about to fall apart. Uh, and that's why we picked uh, a lot of examples, including the biography of Al-Mu'azzam because Al-Mu'azzam was a major figure in greater Syria uh, at the beginning of the 13th century. Uh, the reason we didn't do proper work in terms of dual biography because we don't want to bore the reader, uh, but we highlighted uh, elements Uh, especially using Zahabi, uh, where his biography of the same person, either Al-Mu'azzam or the physician Ya'qub ibn Saqlab featured something tremendously different from the other biography, which he also was aware of. Uh, And that helps us as scholars, and that goes back to a point that we try to make Jumadai, is that it's very important as student of history that we ask the question, what is the objective, what is the interest of a chronicler, of a scholar, to be reporting something like that? So what is the interest of Sibit Ibn Jawzi to be writing a biography about about his political patron, al-Mu'azzam, right? So it's not to read it and say, this is what Sibbitt wrote, therefore it must be correct history. I don't know. As a historian, it's very hard for me to determine if it is exact, correct history. But what I can determine, and that would be more interesting, is to get into the world of Sibbitt ibn Jawzi, why he decided to write the biography in the way he wrote it. And the only way I can determine that, if I look at another biography of Muazzam, uh, to see, did he take things out? Did he include things that the other biographies include? And that was the logic behind including uh, 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 one full biography from a source and selections from another biography in order to highlight that actually these authors uh, were also makers of history. They were not simply reporters of history. They were trying to channel historical information about specific people in certain way. In this way, it is uh, essentially uh, an acknowledgement about the uniqueness of al-Mu'azzam by Sibd ibn Jawzi. Al-Dahabi didn't know al-Mu'azzam, didn't care much about al-Mu'azzam's place in history. So he commented to us that al-Mu'azzam used to drink a lot of alcohol, which is a detail that uh, Sibd ibn Jawzi decided to leave out. And it's very important for a Muslim audience to realize that a lot of biographies of Muslim people have been written with an eye about their legacy, how you are going to shape their legacy, positively or negatively, which brings the uh, authors and actually makes them more like actors than simple passive reporters of information. And again, the best way to achieve this objective is by giving more than one narrative about the same person or the same event uh, and allow the student allow the reader to discover it on their own rather than tell them trust me it's much more complicated than that no give them the information and let them like you like me reach the same conclusion through looking at the evidence
1: well, I think that is a great place to stop because we're actually running up against our time limit. Uh, I want to thank you both so much. This has been uh, really great. The book is incredibly useful. Uh, before we sign off, uh, would you mind sharing with with us what uh, what you're working on now? I mean, you're just you're just in the process of finishing this this big project, so maybe it's a little premature to talk about the next project. But if there is one,
3: well, there is one. All right.
1: No, no rest for the <laughs> yeah, weary. Actually,
3: no, rest, well, uh, Suleiman and I have found that uh, working together is is not only enjoyable, but we learn a lot. Um, and I think it's—I mean, we've talked about this at length among ourselves—that it's um, if you're if you're, you do the monkish approach to scholarship and it's just you by yourself, you you learn a great deal. But there are so many things that I've come up with that I bounced the eye off of Suleiman that. Uh, you know, what he brings to that conversation, he points out that, well, you didn't quite get that right, but what about this? And then you have that back and forth, and you, you end up with a much stronger product at the end. Uh, so that, that's been a great deal of fun. But what, the project that we're starting to embark on now is another translation project that we are going to be doing. We're, we're tentatively calling it Muslim, Biblical Messengers in Islam. And this is, we'll be translating biographies of major biblical characters in, from Ibn Asakr's um, History of Damascus. And again, it'll be modeled on the format that we used in this book so that we'll have study questions and, con, you know, contextualizing essays so that it can be used in classes on, you know, Bible or comparative religion or uh, Islamic uh, religious um Ideas and so that that's going to be a great deal of fun as well. That that's what we're working on. Well, that's getting started working on.
1: That sounds great. I could use that right now. If you guys could uh, you know kick up the pace a little bit, I'd be I'd appreciate it.
3: Well, I, I can't. We both could use it as well. <laughs> no, so, that, so, Iman, you want to you want to so. add to that? Um,
2: uh, my only thing is that uh, we have identified ten uh, personalities, uh, six men and four women, because it's very important uh, to to realize that when we talk of biblical messengers and biblical prophets, uh, from the Islamic perspective, they include both men and women. And I know in the, in the uh, Judeo-Christian tradition, we don't use the word necessarily prophet, but we use the patriarchs and matriarchs. Uh, so in the Islamic tradition, often they are uh, addressed all collectively as messengers. Uh, and it's very important to give uh, the, uh, that kind of complexity. That uh, someone like Ibn Asakir, when he thought of the biblical period, uh, he thought of it. Uh, he thought of the likes of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but and David and Solomon, but also uh, of uh, Eve and Sarah and uh, uh, so many other Mary and so many other uh, women figures, who, whom he considered as uh, messengers, because in one way or another. Uh, they came to either deliver or fulfill uh, uh, some kind of a divine duty. Okay. Which is part of Islamic history, That's, uh, how we perceive it. Uh,
3: yeah, the way we're conceiving of it now, and again, this is the very beginning, so who knows what it's going to end up as. I mean, you, you've written, Ari, you know how that works. But we're thinking, we're, we're planning on doing Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and Jesus, would be the men, and then... Uh, the women would be Eve, Hagar, Sarah, and then Mary and all of them are you know extremely important for their own reason and in the Islamic tradition um, Abraham, Moses, David and Jesus are all recipients of scripture and so that's you know, they're they're obviously important but Adam and Noah are crucially important for you know for obvious reasons as well and you know Eve is the mother of Adam's sons Cain Abel and Seth Hagar is the mother of Abraham's first son, Ishmael. Sarah is the mother of the second son, Isaac, and then of course Mary is as the mother of Jesus. So we think that by addressing these characters, um, and there are many more in the Islamic biblical characters in the Islamic tradition that Ibn Isāqar includes, but this is where we're 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 starting with this project, and um, you know in a volume about the size of this book is what we're anticipating so that you could just, you could assign it very easily in a class. Um, And that's what we're hoping. That's what we're working on now.
1: Oh, that sounds really great. Listen, this has been a fantastic discussion. Thank you both so much again for coming on the podcast. Um, And uh, I wish you luck on the, on the new project. It's really been a pleasure. Well,
3: thank you for having us.
2: Thank you, Ari, for having us. Thank
1: you. Absolutely. Take care guys.